0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. I'm Robbie, and today we will be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. So if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. And just remember that I will read this, and then I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond with thanks be to God. Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. This is God's word. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the story is told that in 1766, the French king, Louis XV, heard rumors that members of the various 13 parliaments, or as we would call them, the appellate courts, that divided up the legal administration of his kingdom, they were ignoring and refusing to enforce certain of his royal edicts. And so King Lu thought to himself, well, I won't stand for this indifference to my royal prerogative. I'm going to do something about it. So in a very unusual move for that time, he gathered together all of his ministers in the court at Paris and came down upon them with a ferocious verbal scourging. And this is what he said to his ministers. It is in my person alone that sovereign power resides. It is from me alone that my courts derive their authority, and the plenitude of this authority, which they exercise only in my name, remains always in me. It is to me alone that legislative power belongs without any dependence and without any division, the whole public order emanates from me and the rights and interests of the nation are necessarily joined with mine and rest only in my hands those are some pretty strong words now the force and majesty of king Louis, louis's words notwithstanding they were in fact some of the lying dying uh, lying too probably dying gasps of a, a dying monarchy but the wit- and the wisdom uh, and good humor of the true king of the world, they provide us with a very good definition of sovereignty, and a good definition of sovereignty is just the sort of thing that we need, because God's sovereignty is what this passage in Jonah is all about. See it in the confession that the sailors make, said as a sort of summary to this whole episode in verse 14, you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now... As we've seen, God's sovereignty has been implicit in the Jonah story from the very beginning. As we said at the start of our series, God's commissioning of Jonah with a word for the Ninevites implies that God has kingly authority over the Ninevites, and that they have a a duty, an obligation, to listen to his word. God's call of Jonah, even, comfortably as sconced as he probably was in the ruling class of Israel, implies that God's desires and will outranks even Jonah's own preferences and desires. God is also the one, we notice, that sends the storm, that finally catches up with Jonah, hurls it, in fact. The the verb there is particularly vivid and personal. But now the sovereignty of God is put before us front and center, we can't miss it. God and God alone has done as it pleased him. He alone is the cause of the storm. His will alone is at the back of it, and it is in response to him alone that it can be adequately dealt with. But most importantly of all, as we shall see, God has an end in his sovereignty, a purpose in his dealings that is utterly different than the purposes of all worldly sovereigns and kings. So our key truth for Jonah 1, 7 through 16, is this. God sovereignly controls all things for the sake of his redemptive mission for the life of the world. Let's not miss that. For the sake of his redemptive mission for the life of the world. So an important question for us as we jump into this is how do you react when you hear about God's sovereign control over your life? You see, many of us have spent either all of our lives or a major portion of our lives, uh, in churches which make much, very biblically, very rightly, make much of the sovereignty of God. However, it is also one of those things that, because it forms the backdrop of so much else that, that we believe, we can often be content, I think, to have fuzzy, vague, or overly general ideas of. So it's worth asking ourselves, um, and even actually for, for those of us who are maybe less familiar with this language, we're in the same danger. We, we can have an overly vague and general idea of God's sovereignty. So it's worth asking ourselves, how do we react to this idea of God's sovereignty? What, what, what feelings get stirred up inside us when, when we talk about this biblical idea? Not because our feelings determine the truth or determine what makes things right in the world, but because we want to examine ourselves, our feelings and our understanding, by the biblical description. So our text teaches us that God's sovereignty is inextricably bound up together with his compassionate mission. The two are bound together in a very close connection. See it in three aspects of God's sovereignty present in our text. First of all, God controls all things. Notice the action of the sailors in casting lots to determine who among them is the reason for the storm that they are in. We shouldn't immediately think, by the way, that the reason they had to do this was because Jonah was um, holding out until the very last minute, until he would admit that he was the reason that God had sent the storm. At this point in the story, it very may well be that Jonah was thinking to himself, perhaps the storm is just a coincidence, or perhaps it's not really about me after all, or perhaps one of the sailors is ultimately to bling. But when all the lots fell on Jonah, all doubt was removed. He was the reason for the storm. Proverbs 16.33 makes this shocking claim. Perhaps your mind has already gone to it. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And by the way, this is not to say that casting lots is the way God expects us to make decisions today. At certain points, it is true. In redemptive history... Casting lots or something very much like it was used by God's people to determine his will. You could think about the Urim and, and Tumen in the Old Testament or in Acts 1 when the disciples uh, were confused about who to replace um, Judas with. They, they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. So at certain points in redemptive history, God's people have used lots to determine his will. But the overwhelming message of the Bible concerning God's will for us in Christ is so clear And the freedom we have in Christ to make decisions about our lives in keeping with our missional calling for the life of the world is so precious that we don't need lots to figure out what to do. What we need are Bible-saturated heads and obedient, life-denying, heaven-desiring hearts that are willing to do things for the sake of God's kingdom that we wouldn't otherwise want to do. That's what we need. It's what Jonah needed too, by the way, in fact. It's the absence of that willing heart in him that makes the lots that have to be cast in this story necessary. So the point about the lots is not that it is a prescription for decision-making, it's the declaration that God controls every aspect of life, even down to the smallest detail. That's the amazing truth about life with a sovereign God, under the watchful care of a sovereign God. Nothing about you is an accident. Nothing. The fact that you're here this morning, not an accident. The fact that you live in Kennesaw or Ackworth or Woodstock or Canton or Marietta, not an accident. Who your spouse is, not an accident. The kind of kids that you have, not an accident. The job that you have, not an accident. The, the life story that made you the kind of person that you are today, the things that you have gone through, the tragedies that you experienced, the joys that you have, not an accident. Not an accident. That's the first piece of the biblical description. God controls all things. Notice from our text another one. The sailors ask Jonah, tell us about yourself. Why has this evil come upon us? And then, through Jonah's honest declaration of the God that he serves, his power over all, and the commission that he has given Jonah, Jonah's sin becomes clear. It is evil, what Jonah has done. It's an evil thing that he has done. And now the solution to this evil seems equally evil to the sailors. They've got to toss Jonah overboard into the raging sea, which, from their perspective, is as good as to kill him. That seems evil to them. Won't you notice with me then that the sovereignty of God is not used as a casual answer to evil? Evil is evil in the Bible. God calls it so and does not excuse it. Neither should we. There is here no soppy, saccharine idea that God's sovereignty means evil. Evil really isn't all that bad, isn't really all that horrible, just so long as we have the right perspective about things. No notion that injustice doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, no stoical, stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on, it'll all work out in the end, substitute for weeping or for compassion in the face of evil. May I suggest to you that here's an aspect of God's sovereignty that we as Christians have sometimes been too breezy about. Some of us, I suspect, in fact, all of us, at one point or another, if we're alive and awake to things in the world and are paying attention, have suffered things that really made us wonder if it could possibly be true that God is in control of all things. Perhaps you've suffered indignity or great injustice or a tragedy or sickness, and the well-meaning but casual answer to the question, how could a loving God possibly bring this into my life, has been, well, you know, he's sovereign after all, so he'll work it out for good. And such an answer has seemed to you inadequate to meet the pain you are going through. Or perhaps we ourselves have been guilty of using God's sovereignty as a trite excuse to not really care. So let us see clearly from our text that God's sovereignty is not a casual answer to the problem of evil. Evil is evil and God cannot abide it. He hates indignity, injustice, sickness, and death. He is not casual or indifferent about them, and neither should we be. So rather than determine that God's agency behind the storm means that they can treat Jonah any which way they want, the sailors first try to desperately make it back to shore. But God prevents them. So yet again, rather than decide that this means that they are free from responsibility, The sailors can just toss Jonah overboard. All right, well, we did our best. That's job done. No, they call out to the sovereign God. Lord, you've done this. Now we're going to throw Jonah overboard, just like he said, please have mercy upon us. So notice with me a third aspect of God's sovereignty. Rather than excuse evil, God's sovereignty has the redemption of his people and the overcoming of evil in Christ as its aim. See it in the calming of the sea. The sea immediately calmed when the sailors threw Jonah into it. The storm that had thrown the boat into such confusion and in which, which had made everyone aboard fear for their lives was over in an instant. They were still in the land of the living. Still another day of God's mercy was upon them. And this is not to say that, that God makes all fears go away in an instant. But it is to say that in his sovereign will, he will sovereignly provide the opportunity to run back to him. God issues the call, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he sovereignly makes possible the response, no matter the storm that you are in. See it also in the response of the sailors. God is glorified, Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The wayward prophet Jonah has not escaped God's call upon his life. He's not escaped God, and he's not truly escaped the mission that God has given him to bring his word to a foreign people. Not in the end, after all. That is the picture here of God's sovereignty. He's able to use Jonah even in his wayward condition to fulfill the mission that he had given him to bring redemption to his people. And the fact that the text mentions, by the way, that the sailors not only feared the Lord and not only made sacrifices but also made vows probably indicates that this was more than just a momentary emotion, uh, sort of an obligatory duty that they're going to, well, God saved us, so we've got to go offer some sacrifices, but, but really a genuinely but probably imperfectly, but genuinely changed heart. A desire to continue to know Yahweh and follow Him. So I expect we'll we'll meet these sailors in heaven. And this is getting ahead of ourselves just a bit, but also notice it in the sovereign appointment of Jonah with the fish. God provides a means of redemption for Jonah too. So from beginning to end, this is the, the picture we receive in this text of God's sovereignty. Our text teaches us that God's sovereignty is inextricably bound. It's bound so close together that we could not pull the cords that bind it together apart. Bound together with his compassionate mission. He controls all things not as an excuse to make light of evil, but for the sake of his redemptive mission for the life of the world. Here's how Douglas Stewart sums it up. He says, God is the one who controls the events in Jonah. It was God's command to his prophet that evoked Jonah's futile response a flight in the first place. It was God who hurled his wind at the sea to produce the life-threatening storm. God caused the lots to designate Jonah to the crew as the source of their distress, and God calmed the sea suddenly when Jonah was thrown overboard. Imagine being one of the sailors when the empty ship arrived back at port in Joppa. When the others proposed worshiping as a group at a shrine of Yahweh to show their lasting gratitude, do you think it'd be easy to say, not me, some other time perhaps? What had happened to the sailors was probably the most awesome and shocking experience of their lives. Could they ever forget what they had seen Yahweh, Jonah's God, do? No, they couldn't. They could never forget it, and that's the point of God's sovereign action in their lives, to bring them to a realization, to wake them up to the reality of who He was, so that they could see His compassion and His mercy to them and respond to it. So I have a closing question for us to consider today. In what ways has God's goodness and faithfulness to you in Christ helped you to trust Him amid painful and tragic, tragic experiences? And maybe even more importantly, how might this shape the way that we talk about his sovereignty, think about it for ourselves, and talk about his sovereignty with others? You know, there are so many biblical passages we could quote about God's sovereignty. I feel like it's one of those things B.B. Warfield said about the doctrine of um, inspiration, that it's like an avalanche. You, You can dodge a few verses here and there. You can try to explain away a couple of others, but the the force of it, the the biblical testimony is so great that it's like an avalanche coming down a hill. You're just not going to miss it. You're going to get swept up in it. And God's sovereignty is a lot like that. It's just an avalanche in the Bible. But you know, maybe the most important of them all is the confession of the early Christians in Acts chapter 4, and the comparison that they make between the impotent sovereignty of worldly kings and the merciful and gracious sovereignty revealed in the redemption of God's people through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's what they said, Acts chapter four. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together Stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice the result. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There's a picture of God's sovereignty yet again. And the purpose of it is so that God's people are reminded of his gracious and compassionate mission for the life of the world. And they're filled with boldness. So they are able then to go and proclaim that word with boldness to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Another one just off the top of my head, Isaiah 46. A very clear illustration of God's sovereign control over the nations. And yet what is the point? I'm different from the gods that you could worship. I'm different from them i'm not like this mute and deaf and stone idol that you have to carry around on your shoulders no i'm alive and i'm living and i'm hearing and responding that's the point of god's sovereign actions in the world is that his people come to him in faith and recognize that he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast faithfulness and love folks that's the biblical picture of god's sovereignty from beginning to end God is on a mission to make his name known. In his sovereignty, he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't overlook evil. He doesn't tolerate it or treat it as a trivial thing. But he has overcome it in Christ for all who put their faith in him. That's the picture, in a way, of the table that we'll partake of in a minute. The picture of God's sovereign care over the life of his people. So that no matter what we have gone through, the things that we have done that by rights ought to separate us from God and totally exclude us from a future with Him, have been overcome in Christ. And so now He watches over us with such a particular care that no matter what we go through, all must be well. That we we can come before Him and know that the trials and tribulations of life, as desperate as they sometimes seem, or as tragic and as painful as they sometimes seem seem to us, are not the end of the story, but that He has given us a future and a hope in Christ. God has highly exalted Christ, the very image of God, an exact imprint of his nature, who was with him from the beginning, far above every sovereign ruler and potentate in the world. Look to him for a sovereignty not like the sovereignty claimed by earthly powers like King Lou in France. Look to Christ for sovereignty big enough and righteous enough to cleanse you from all unrighteousness to give you a future and a hope, and one day to make all things new. Earthly sovereigns make a lot of big claims for themselves. Christ is the only sovereign with true and eternal sovereignty who controls all things for the sake of a redemptive mission. So listen to this prayer from John Calvin, and then we'll be done. He says, Grant, almighty God, that as you have once given us such an evidence of your infinite power in your servant Jonah, whose mind, when he was almost sunk down into hell, you yet raised up to yourself and supported with firm constancy, so that he prayed and called on you, O oh, grant that in the trial, trials by which we must be daily exercised, we may raise upwards our minds to you and never cease to think that you are near us. And when the signs of your wrath appear, and when our sins thrust themselves before our eyes and drive us to despair, may we still constantly struggle. I love this. And never surrender the hope of your mercy. Until having finished all our contests, we may at length freely and fully give thanks to you and praise your infinite goodness, such as we daily experience, that being conducted through continual trials, we may at last come into that blessed rest which is laid up for us in heaven through Christ our Lord. Amen. And amen. What a difference that makes for us to know that we serve a sovereign God who controls all things, but who doesn't overlook evil, doesn't treat it as a trivial thing, weeps with those who weeps, has compassion on those who are suffering and in pain, and one day will make all things new. God exercises his sovereignty unlike the sovereignty of earthly kings. He exercises it for a redemptive mission. May that fill our hearts and motivate us to talk about and to think about God's sovereignty in a way that doesn't excuse trite or indifferent feelings or treat it as just a casual answer. The, the, the philosophy that we have that just gets all the problems in life tied up in a bow so we can just say, oh, I don't got to worry about that, about that anymore, but instead draws us into his compassionate mission for the life of the world. So what does Jonah 1, 7 through 16 teach us? It teaches us that God is sovereignly at work in every part of our lives to show himself gracious, merciful, and faithful to all who call upon him. Finally, to bring people from every nation into the rest and joy of his his eternal kingdom. God has a mission in his sovereignty. God has a redemptive mission in his sovereignty, and it is inextricably bound together with the exercise of his sovereignty. May we praise the Lord for this wonderful goodness of his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord, which comes to us in times of pain and and confusion sometimes and of joy in others. And Lord, we ask that it would shape the way that we think about you and your redemptive mission in the world and our calling as your people. Lord, may we indeed rest in the sovereignty that you are God over all and you control all things, nothing in our lives, O Lord, is an accident. Nothing is indifferent to you, nothing is unseen by you. And yet, Lord, in the moments when we wonder, why is this evil come upon me? Or how am I going to make it through another day? Lord, may we rest in that sovereignty also, knowing that you have a redemptive purpose in all your dealings with your people, so that we would come to know and love you even better than we do, so that at last we can enjoy your perfect rest in heaven with Jesus. So, Lord, may that, in fact, sink down so deep into our hearts and bones, that we would be motivated and filled with joy in your redemptive mission, that we would be on the lookout for ways in which we can talk about your sovereignty, which is so good and so much better than the various sovereignties that are on offer in the world to those who desperately need to hear it. Lord, may it so shape the way that we think and live and conduct ourselves in the world that people cannot help but notice that we serve a heavenly Father who cares for us in the very particular of our lives, And may you get the glory from the way in which we testify in this way about your goodness to us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.